Welcome to the Stargate Archives, buried deep within Cheyenne Mountain. Greetings everybody, welcome to the latest episode of the Stargate Archives. This week uh, we're going to be doing something a little different, a 17 part series looking at each season of the live action Stargate franchise shows. We're going to be looking at each episode in turn, a little overview for each one, a few comments, a few thoughts, and then we're going to give you a yay or nay whether it's worth re-watching if you sit down to do a rewatch. Is the episode worth it for the first timer? Is it worth it for someone who's familiar with Stargate? If you listen to a lot of podcasts, you know this format is done by many. See it or skip it. I think that's a, a play on nerds. One of the Star Trek podcasts I listen to, they do something very similar. Just bear with us. We tried to think up something imaginative, but I'm really not that creative. And if you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time, you know that. That's why we used to do a commentary. Right, this week I am joined by Brad. Evening, mate. Hello, Mike. This old book's been dusted off and it's about to get put back in the archive again. <laughs> <laughs> That's about it, yeah. No, it's great. Great to be back on and get to talk about Stargate again. Yeah, it's been a while. This episode recording went through a, a few little hiccups on the way, trying to get us a time to suit everything. There was benefit in having a regular weekly commitment you know, you could plan ahead, three, four, five episodes ahead. We're recording then, yet we're recording then, even if it's 4 or 5 a.m. like you used to do. <laughs> oh, yeah, there was some, there was some early mornings, half past three, four o'clock, just, just to get it in record before going to work. And, wow, even just some of the remote stuff, parked in the truck on the side of the highway, <laughs> doing, it, <laughs> doing it over the phone, like, that's long ago now. Uh, we got it done, though. We got it done. Yeah, yeah, no, it's just a, as you said, matter of time. Sit down this this past weekend, been on two other podcasts and probably recorded about four and a half, five hours of podcast material and now going into this one as well. So busy man and I'll uh, talk to you after the show about that check. <laughs> right, oh. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be in Alan's name. <laughs> <laughs> okay then, obviously we're going to be starting on Stargate SG-1 Season 1 and Children of the Gods, the series opener, the season opener the episode that had to transition between the TV series and the movie. This first aired July the 27th, 1997, written by Jonathan Glasner and Brad Wright, directed by Mario Azapardi. Basic premise. Stargate under the Shire Mountain gets activated externally. Some sort of military force comes through the Stargate, kidnaps some Air Force personnel, and the proverbial hits a fan, as the reports that Jack O'Neill, on his previous mission to... Abydos. I was thinking Tulak there for a minute. <laughs> you know, basically said he nuked the place, you know. So, uh, well, any thoughts? The memory, <laughs> trying to go back. I remember when the original movie came out, that VHS I used to carry around with me, and I'm sure some people would have the same memories with maybe Star Wars or Indiana Jones or something, just playing something to death. That was Stargate until, yeah, it would have been Stargate after the Dress Park VHS died. Yeah. Um, I don't know how, I don't know if it was just an ad on TV advertising that there was going to be a show and the show was on this Thursday night or whenever it aired here. I'm guessing it was probably a good six or eight months after the US, which was normally the norm back then, but trying to watch it at home with poor reception, um, getting the snowball effect and I think because again it was like 7.30 or 8.30, so parents and siblings were still awake trying to watch TV as well and 
trying to turn it over in the ads and no, we're not watching this crap to turn it off. <laughs> Just, I, don't, I don't even know when I finally seen it. Probably when lot later when they started releasing the box sets for the uh, season, but it's still one every now and then I'll go to. I've got the uh, Brad Wright cut they re-released in 2009, I think it was, yep. for um, nudity removed and all that. And I'd always wish that The Enemy Within was tagged on as well because I think the two stories go really well together. And it just brings us Tilk, which will go on to be one of favourite characters in later seasons as well, once he starts to flex those vocal muscles and just gets away from the head nods and indeeds. Yes, no secret that Christopher Judge took it easy the first few seasons of Stargate. All he had to do was show up. Yeah, yep. <laughs> yes, they made some changes to the characters, uh, some M4, some not so much. Jay Yakovon as Major Charles Kowalski. Ferretti, he was there as well. Alexis Cruz uh, carried over his role from the movie. That was a good choice. You you had to have something that linked the two without just mm. being character names, you know. Changing the main characters, Jack O'Neill and Daniel Jackson, being able to bring a familiar face in worked. Yeah, well, same for Kasuf, just having those and those um some of those actors from the original film being there because it is a bit of a it is a bit of a jump going from <laughs> going complete new cast and trying to say that it's sort of it's a continuation. Yeah, this was a two-part feature, although some regions it was actually aired as a two separate uh, single episodes. Obviously, it's better to watch it as a full feature-length episode now, as uh, Brad says. The final cut. Definitive edition. They, they, made, they put some word on it. <laughs> something like that, yeah, something like that to differentiate it. Made some very definite changes. They made it more family-friendly, like I said, took out the nudity, added a few things in, redubbed Tilk's vocals, gave him his much deeper more commanding voice that he obviously developed as the character grew on. Worked very well. Apophis became the bad guy of the early seasons of Stargate. The system lord who'd over from Ra. Very nice idea to... Well, it, it was always claimed that Ra was the last of his kind. They got around that reasonably well. Yeah, just that minor, that minor tweak of um, making the gold more than just the one, the one character. You've always got to be careful. I mean, when you hear anything from a movie, is it the characters telling you what they know? Is it the movie telling you what you need to know? Ra could easily have told his servants, I am the last of my kind. I am the only one. He didn't want anybody else to know about Abydos or Earth or anybody to get an idea that there's there's more than one god. Well, that that's it. We get it throughout the franchise whenever they come across a new world. Bow to your one true god or... Yeah, it's always the one we don't really see a lot of examples where the common villagers know of more than just the one that's ruling over them. They might know of someone before that was vanquished or defeated, but yeah, the system lords don't go around visiting other people's worlds for the for the most part. <laughs> no, they're a little territorial. Mm. Right, we're introduced, of course, to Richard Dean Anderson as Colonel Jack O'Neill, Michael Shanks as Doctor Daniel Jackson, cast as he says himself because he looked like uh, uh, what's his name. Spader. (laughs) I watched the blacklist uh, religiously. (laughs) Sometimes the name just blanks on you. And I'll say Spader. I won't say the first name because I end up saying the other one with long hair. (laughs) There's a James. There's a James and another one. (laughs) Funnily enough, I got home from work one day last week, and one of the I don't know Sony Sony channels on or CBS channels was was on telly, and it was uh, I think it was Murder She Wrote or something like that. And they had this guy on who was a spitting image of Michael Shanks as a young bloke. <laughs> it was freaky. I had to do a double take. I thought, 
Michael Shanks on Murder, She Wrote, but no. <laughs> it wasn't him, but it so looked like him. It was uncanny. Mm. Oh, even just throwing Children of the Gods and throwing Unending <laughs> and just, just how much these characters are grown, in, both in age and acting prowess. <laughs> yeah. I was surprised, obviously, the nudity scene that they ended up cutting out for the DVD, but I never knew that there was a rated R in the States and it would have been PG-15 or MA-15 over here. That's it, Showtime. If you had Showtime, you expected something other than what you could see on network television. That means mm. language or nudity. Nudity was the easiest to do. Yeah. <laughs> Like I say, it wasn't fitting for the type of show Stargate wanted to be. They realised that pretty quickly and all the better for it. Mm. Yeah, that's right. And Brad Wright got to remove it as he originally wanted to and bruised cut. The ultimate line from Captain Samantha Carter about her reproductive organs. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Although it does stay in for 200, which is good. Yeah, yeah. The one thing another podcast I listened to made the comment that if only watched the, the final edit, the final court talk, it's, it's on my DVD, on my shelf behind me, but I can't be bothered to actually turn around and have a look. <laughs> if you've only seen that version of it, then that in episode 200 might, you know, just might scratch your head a bit. Mm. Right, Children of the Gods. I think this is going to be an easy question. Is it a mussy or can you skip it? Cree. Cree, yeah. A definite Cree. <laughs> yep. And if you're not sure about that, folks, as you know, if you've been watching Stargate for any length of time, the word Cree is often used for... Any sort of situation, especially by Jack. <laughs> you heard me. Yeah. And since we couldn't come up with anything interesting, if anybody out there can come up with, with a couple of words for yes or no, but are in tune with Stargate, I even went through some of the translations of Go Old. <laughs> just as you have could dig something out that fitted. But I think not... after the uh, discussion of each episode, you're going to know which way we're leaning. Yeah, <laughs> we're pretty just much so. commenting on it. Children of the Gods, definite must-watch, whether you're a first-timer or a regular viewer. Yeah, as we said before, just taking what they showed in the movie and then just expanding. Yes, the gate goes other places. Yes, Bra wasn't the last of the gold. And just opening that world, like, wow, <laughs> so many yeah. possibilities. But before we get to visiting other worlds, we have a problem within. Yep, The Enemy Within. Aired August the 1st, 1997. Written by Brad Wright, directed by Dennis Berry. This is basically an episode where Tilk has to prove himself to the High Command that he's worthy of being on SG-1, despite Jack's opinion that he's already proven himself. That's kind of the B-plot, though. The main plot is a story about Major Kowalski, who, during a brief firefight and evacuation of a planet, gets infected, gets taken over by a Gorge symbiote, unbeknownst to everybody else on the base. Yeah, those neck pains will get you. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I it's definitely, definitely needed and probably best to get here and get it out of the way straight away. If you get one of these things in you, we don't have the toker in that yet, so it's near a death sentence. Yeah, at the moment, they don't know anything about this alien species. In fact, as we see in the episode, it's more likely that the Air Force will want to experiment on you. Mm. In fact, expect the airman, the officer, to actually willingly participate in the experiments. <laughs> That's his duty. Yeah, no, exactly, and dumb Air Force expecting them to cooperate with you and tell you all their knowledge and all their technology and everything else. Yeah, despite Tilk, you know, saying, you know, they won't tell you out. Oh, by the way, I don't know anything either. Throughout the series, it's quite often how Tilk pops up with these little bits of trivia that help immensely. <laughs> In this episode, I know nothing. Yeah, always after the fact. <laughs> great job, great job helping out there, Tilk. <laughs> We still haven't got Janet Fraser yet, so Kevin McNulty, playing Dr. William Warner, is the main, the frontline medic. We get one doctor who gets uh, his neck broken, 
by uh, Kowalski <laughs> gets shoved in a bunk. You'll be all right. <laughs> Nobody checks here. We haven't got many female staff, so you know these rooms aren't really used for you know the odd quickie, unlike most American medical dramas you see. Uncanny how many times a doctor or a nurse or a couple of doctors nip in there. <laughs> And we're a long way away from Stargate Universe, where, it's, where it became rather com- a common occurrence. <laughs> yeah. Now, one thing, one thing that's always got me off this episode is just the end with Tilk's plan to stop Kowalski by holding him at the event horizon. We see numerous times during the episode the computer displays that of the, the symbiote being around the person's neck or at the stem of the brain, where like in the end it just slices off a little piece at the back of the skull, <laughs> which yeah. you'd think if. It'd be just Red Queen off with his head and just stick the whole head in there. <laughs> I, th- I think they may not have gotten away with him being decapitated, whereas for most of you know most of the scene, you don't see the wound. Mm. Well, you'd also go off just push push him into the into the event horizon, so it goes <laughs> that way. But having the gold in you does make you bulletproof. So I don't know why you couldn't just a couple of shots to the base of the neck, <laughs> shoot him in the back. We're going to get a lot lot of questions about plot points of each of the stories especially on the first season, because they really don't know what they're doing from episode to episode, trying to find, figure out what works, what doesn't, how the Stargate works, how the wormhole operates, what can you do with a DHD compared to a dialing computer. Obviously, the DHD knows, can, can control the Stargate to the point where, although maybe the Stargate itself knows you can stick your hand in and it's not going to transport it 50 light years away and mm. uh, <laughs> recom- recombine <laughs> it, not until you're 100% through, so... Hey, you can stick parts of your body in. And technically, the wormhole shouldn't shut down. Is that just because a DHT safety feature and not a dialing computer safety feature? I suppose so. You've got to go with that. But then we, we get that same thing used later on on base where hand keeps the gate open until everyone <laughs> yeah, comes through. Yeah. So, yeah, so. So that is used uh, in SG-1 and SUU. Mm-hmm. Well, it's only used in SGU because someone read the mission reports and said, well, if you <laughs> yeah. can do this. <laughs> yeah, it won't, it won't close down with me all minute, but there's only 38 minutes. And this is version... It'll, yeah, that's version one. It'll, <laughs> yeah. stay, it'll stay open. It, well, why does it automatically shut down at 38 minutes then if it can stay open longer? I don't yeah. know. <laughs> we haven't wrote about that yet. But it's sort of one one thing when you like look at season one here and some of the um, experimentation, I'll say, with where some of the stories go going forward and... I've been watching season one of uh, Atlantis recently and just how much tighter and how much you can see that the the production crew have been doing this for a while and know exactly what they need to do. Like even here, we don't have really a gate issue episode until Solitudes, but even then that's just the gates hit off world and sends them somewhere else. It's not really a earth gate issue. So season one, it's more about the character building, tying off some loose ends from the film and, building building this team of four and some other supporting characters as well. Yeah. This is a good episode for Hammond as well. We learn pretty early on that he is loyal to the people under his command and he is a bit sceptical of outsiders who come in throwing their weight around. It's a pity that Kowalski had to die in this episode. Jay Ekavone is a good actor, one of the jobbing actors you'll see in all manner of productions <laughs> in Canada. We do get him back in later episodes too, which is yeah, great yeah. to have him back. But yeah, it would have been good to have SG4 or SG2 with him uh, in command and maybe not just sticking with the same four people all the time, having them as backup. Two regular teams, even if the second one you only see probably every six or so in that episode, but it's the same team. Mm. Yeah, because that's one of the running gags of the show. Like Even up to season 10, we know there's other SG teams, 
but they're always chopping and changing, always got someone else running them, or they're always dying. Yeah. Oh, sorry, SG-12, but yeah, just... <laughs> <laughs> that's one thing they never built on is just the homework command staff or the uh giant mountain staff Morgate teams yep but on hammond it's like even back at children of the gods where he's got colonel i know there he's got jack in the office and he's like you sure the abydos gate was destroyed well i'm gonna send a bomb and he has that little smirk on his face while jack can't see like trying to get him to tell the truth and then <laughs> straight down his throat about it it's sort of weird there the character where he's starting to show that um, he can get along with people, but he's following the rules as well. That's the best you want. It'll give you so much leeway, so much rope, but eventually he's got to pull you back. Yeah. So, the enemy within. Cree. Cree? Yep. <laughs> Definitely watch it back to back with Children of the Gods. Gondraya! Right, episode three or episode four, depending upon how you view it. Emancipation. All right, let's get to it. <laughs> you know, feel free to just read the synopsis if you want off Wiki or IMDb. Yeah, SG-1 visits a planet led by the, I'm not going to try and say that name, but pretty much Mongols, descendants of Genghis Khan, written by Catherine Power. She comes back a few times during Season 1 and later on in the season as well, or series. August 8, 997, so we're still in that first couple of months of airing. Yeah, SG-1 travelled to a world that's pretty high on the uh, Mongol living and women aren't really taken too seriously and this aggravates AM to no end. Yeah, so this is an episode which has a lot of problems that are very visible on the surface. So much so that you're looking at it and you think, didn't someone in the suit say, this isn't going to work? Or was it just, this was quite fine for 1997? Yeah. My biggest issue of this episode isn't the fact that, or isn't Sam being... Well, even SG-1 just interfering with this culture and way of life because they feel so high and mighty about it. It's more so the move from Egyptian to ancient Mongolian. <laughs> I yeah. was going to say China, but just a different to move away from that ancient Egypt. Without, I didn't re-watch the episode, so I'm sure there may be a line in there saying, well, maybe the Gould took cultures from other parts of the world or, or what have you, but I don't think... It wasn't memorable enough to remember <laughs> why. <laughs> why anyway? And even we do get some of that stuff later on with some of the Catholic culture and Catholic Roman and that sort of stuff as well. But you do have the whole mistreating women that here and women of property and and that whole storyline as well. Which, as I said before, Sam wants to interfere and Daniel seems okay with it. <laughs> yeah, that that was one of the strange things. It was obvious right from the start that a female member of the SGC was going to have problems in this society. Easiest solution, gate back and send an all-male team. But obviously, Daniel and Jack, typical man man viewpoint, oh, we'll be okay, she'll be fine, no worries, nothing to be concerned about. But obviously, there is, big time. Initial things, Crystal Lowe, beautiful woman, white woman, playing a Mongol girl. <laughs> uh, skin tone, a little out of place, he has to say. Fair credit, they had a lot of actors that fit the role. Obviously, they weren't going to be Mongolian because that region of the world doesn't really export actors. <laughs> very fact of it, the Marco Polo TV series, which was actually very, very entertaining. How accurate it was, I don't know, but they had to <laughs> rely a lot more on Chinese actors because, obviously, they couldn't get native Mongolians to do the job. Mm, and a lot of facial hair. <laughs> yeah. But, again, the way they tr- treated their women in that, women in that society, they were... Commodities. Mm. The Khans had our rooms full of women. They had a number one wife, number two wife, etc., etc. Concubines, everything like that. So a chieftain buying a woman and a woman being sold, perfectly normal in this way. Mm. Uh, whether or not this is what 
a series like Stargate should have been using that as a base of a storyline, I'm not quite so sure. Because ultimately it didn't work very well. <laughs> Soon Teku as Mogul, the, the chieftain, he was great. His son, perfectly acceptable. The bad guy, Turgon, nice, menacing, very menacing, so much so that he was a little bit rough with Amanda during one of the scenes. It was mentioned on a podcast I listened to that when she finally had the knife fight with him and was able to win and forced him to admit that she beat him, there might have been a little bit of payback <laughs> there by the actress herself. Yeah. But of course, that's the director's job to, you know, give an actor, if there's going to be a very physical scene, how much force they've got to use, how much restraint, if they're going too far to step in, not rely on the actress to hold her hand up and say, he's hurting me or he went too far. Mm. Oh, yeah, especially there's a lot of stunt face slapping in this episode, too. Yeah. <laughs> Probably one of the more physical-looking episodes we get in Season 1, but just continues this run here, too, where we're off-world and we're getting our asses kicked pretty big time. And Like, even even as you were saying before, just how blasé Jack and Daniel and <laughs> that are, just to what's going on here, it's when it's really one of their first or second times off-world. Yeah, the, the fact that they make it a bit of a joke when Sam's in the native dress. Mm. I mean, I appreciate the dress, but... It's 20 years on, over 20 years on. You just cringe and thinking, oh, God, no. Mm. She is a captain in the US Air Force, and her military commander and two of her peers are treating her like she's a 15-year-old schoolgirl in a prom dress, and it's the first time they've seen a cleavage. Back then, maybe it didn't bother me so much. Now I'm just thinking, no. <laughs> but I suppose also, too, it's it's one of those issues with having some of these older cultures, older nomadic tribes and stuff like that where even when we get it later on with even like the like Thor's hammer and that where they start to turn around and have the women in more power and stuff like that it's sort of okay well you've obviously had some um fan backlash or whatever from emancipation or someone wasn't real a fan of that and let's go the other way where it doesn't really even spirits and that where you have sort of like the indian tribes and that it, it's not really a real reflection on how that tribe may have worked and okay well they're Aliens have been taken away from their culture ages ago and maybe have evolved along a different line. But I guess they're going to show us probably good that Emancipation was early in the season and by many yeah. fans, easy <laughs> to forget. Uh, very much so. There's probably many long-running fans that missed the episode first time around anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Emancipation. Pre. <laughs> uh, definite pre. Contraya! Right, up next is The Rocker Divide. August 15th, 1997, written by show creator Jonathan Glasner and directed by William Geraghty. This episode is of the world of light and darkness. Never really explained how such a world came to be, but a nice idea that a stable population, low technology, but plenty of food, reasonably healthy. But after a while, their people came down with some sort of illness and they were cast out into the darkness where they became feral because that always works. <laughs> when your friend turns into a zombie, just throw them outside so they can go and eat someone else. <laughs> uh, what to say about this episode? Uh, Janet Fraser, Wehe, Terrell yep. Roffrey makes her appearance on the show. Huge plus point yep. there for the episode and the series. Yep, all the men get big foreheads and get to run around their knuckles. <laughs> <laughs> Dilk has to be the diplomat and make his own pilgrimage to... Or was it not my not Mayan? Oh, what was it? You know, look, looking for some blood samples, but uh, you know they're not very the king and queen not very receptive to this idea. So, well, he has to make his own arrangements by knocking out the guards and taking the samples. 
Good for Tilk. Yeah, and it's also the start of my symbiote will protect me. Which yes, yeah. Fortunately, Daniel has a natural immunity, and uh, Tilk, you know, symbiote Junior, he's okay. Uh, Janet, wave a magic test tube around, figures out that it's a deficiency. Is it something to do with antihistamines? Yeah, something very simple like that. Yeah, because Daniel's got his allergies, and of course, that medication (laughs) wears off and. He become he gets quite a harem. <laughs> I know. I mean, we don't. I mean, we do actually see a woman being attacked. It's all the build up to an, a rape scene, if we're being honest. And Daniel is rather handsy as well. Yeah. Well, especially again, coming straight off emancipation here, you've got um, you got these men just here yeah, taking women, whether the women are well, obviously they'd be sick as well, otherwise they wouldn't be out there. But yeah, it's gets a bit like that at times. Yeah, a little, a little bit awkward. You have to you have to step around it, and then you, again, from a couple of decades later, decades later, you've got, you've just got to look back and say, well, yeah, maybe this was normal back then. Maybe the the police procedural would have shown this sort of thing, so it's perfectly fine in science fiction show. Not a great episode, but it has its high points. I seem to remember Jolly season one of Sliders and Sequest. They always come across a bar or a planet where. Oh, it's a woman grabber. Like, it might be just the result of the, the men writing the show and thinking, well, we need to have one of these episodes in here or something. But Yeah, yeah. Th- there's, there's always win of loose virtue in, in these shows. <laughs> it's not the last time we're going to see that in season one. <laughs> no, that, that is true. Notable guest stars, Gerard Plunkett as Councillor Tuplo. He returns later in the series, an uh, excellent actor. Tilk, as we pointed out, Christopher Judge, he has something to do in this episode. Jack does some nice, nice acting as uh, the the infected. You know, he he's fighting against it. It's basically his strength of will that keeps him able to communicate when others have totally lost it. Volunteers to be a guinea pig for the uh, the early serum. Everything works out okay in the end. The the people of the planet of P three X seven nine seven, the touched and the untouched or yeah untouched. Everybody gets together. It's, it's uncanny, really. <laughs> you know? Everyone just wanders out of, the, out of the forest alive and in perfect health. <laughs> yeah. And you think, surely there must be some people of the untouched who threw the granny into the touched and she ain't coming out again. Well, we're saying Daniel was clubbing around with some big bones. We don't see any <laughs> yeah. wildlife in this episode. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a, very disturbing, really, when you think about it. <laughs> because yeah. you think, again, we don't know the background of this world. How long... Has this ecosystem been like this so long that wildlife can evolve, can sustain itself in this region, this dark region? Or do they migrate, eternal? We don't know. But thankfully it's not that important to the story. No. So, the Broca Divide. Is it worth watching? Three. Now, this was a more difficult decision. I'm going to have to say three. Ultimately, nothing important happens. You do get to see a bit of acting range out of RDA and and just Daniel (laughs) acting. yeah. It's good for a bit of a laugh. <laughs> yeah, let's move on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Contraya! Oh, the first commandment. Joy of joys. SG9 ventures to P3X513, but they're long overdue, and SG's one sent in after them to find out what's happened, and they soon discover that their commander has uh, gone a little nutty <laughs> in the sun. A little. And that game, like the enemy within, and that getting some of these episodes out of the way early. A lot of these SG teams would be just military men that have been brought in from other squadrons, other apartments, and that. So, not having the training like they would in later seasons of actually having a training, training thing on base and letting people know what they're going to be up for out there, where 
here, <laughs> the sun's obviously got some damaging components to it from the radiation and gone to his head, and he's seen as a god. So, okay, <laughs> well, we are, because we're more important than what they are. Yes, definitely so. The psychological testing would be very brief, if anything, at this point. I suppose it's the same way where you're looking at military officers or enlisted men being uh, MPs. You've got to have that mindset you can control other people without losing your temper, without doing anything drastic. Yeah. It may be that some of the SG teams are combat units or from combat units who aren't really expected to... When they're told to pacify a region, their view is, shoot everybody. Mm. They always say you want a couple of SG teams of Marines. Like, they'd be just going, search and destroy, or something like that. They wouldn't have the uh, the Daniel Jackson in there or the Carter. They'd just, they're back up with guns. We need guns. Yeah, they're, they're not going sightseeing or examining the nice pictographs. Mm. <laughs> right, this episode aired August 22nd, 1997, written by Robert C. Cooper and directed by Dennis Berry. William Russ played Captain Jonas Hansen, a character who had a previous relationship with Captain Carter. We didn't need that. <laughs> no. The we... whole engagement and that was not needed at all. It could have been she served with him, or they came through the ranks together, or anything yeah. like that. We don't really know what Jonas was like before he went off the deep end, but I've got the idea that maybe he had a few psychological issues right from the word go. Hmm. Well, that's it. He could have been over at the Gulf when Carter logged those air airtime hours or... Or anything like that. Especially we've been building Carter up as almost super soldier as well. And we are, well, she was engaged and that's probably, yeah, it didn't fit. And we do get the first appearance of uh, Roger Cross on Stargate. An actor who you become very familiar with if you like Canadian television. <laughs> excellent, excellent actor. He is in anything and everything. We get the Stargate on its side here too, which is something different. Yes, that was a great visual. Mm -hmm. Has it ever been confirmed that that's ancient tech, or is it just something else, the uh, shield, or the, the two orange shields? Because it's sort of, off memory, it's sort of reminiscent of what McKay finds in Childhood's End, but like the, the two different devices completely. Even on looking back, you've got to, you've got to assume it was ancient. Well, it's definitely not the um, the local. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's not Tolan. Yeah. Definitely not the Knox. You know, they would have that sort of shield technology, you know, what they, they can muck about with, but... The very fact it's orange, you know, makes you think that we know that some of the system lords are not stupid. They have research and development aspects of their domain. Bol, especially. The technology does look gold, mm. but it's hard to imagine at this point that they actually built it for that purpose. Repurposed it, maybe. Made the changes to it. Mm. Possibly. Yeah, or well, even how long we see a lot of ancient, all of, again, the ruins scattered everywhere and maybe maybe the radi radiation just got bad and instead of transplanting everyone off planet to a better planet they just set this up to keep who was there there but yeah we need this mineral unfortunately if you put miners there they're dead in two days but if you actually put the shield up they'll last six months well they're humans we don't care exactly <laughs> keep mining there's a pain in the backside if you have to keep shipping new ones in every every week yeah we're going to spend a bit of money and put a shield up well barry found this device we might be able to use that <laughs> Nah, I think that's all I've got to say on it. <laughs> yeah, the first commandment. Worth watching? Great. Great. Oh, this is a bad run. <laughs> <laughs> or is it a good run? <laughs> well, it depends, Rick. <laughs> no, bad. <laughs> Come try ya! Okay then, Cold Lazarus. Aired August 29th, 1997. Written by Jeffrey F. King. Directed by Kenneth J. Girotti. 
this was an episode where the team go to a planet which is basically a sort of storage pit. But fortunately, it's big enough that you can't actually see the walls. So take the cameras <laughs> down low and you've got an alien world which looks alien. It really does look alien. Yeah. I've been actually examining these crystals that show signs of blast damage. They realise that this isn't the natural state of these. These crystals have been kind of herded into a, a killing zone and fired upon by staff weapons. Jack walks off a bit. Not a clever idea on an alien world, especially when you go over a little dune and you're not in line of sight. Touches one of these crystals, gets flown back, and Jack gets up, picks the MP5 up, and walks away, leaving Jack lying <laughs> on the sulphur. Dun dun dun. <laughs> Well, it's, it's just good here. I think it's the only time we get it in this season of just not the, the human in a rubber mask or the typical Star Trek alien. It, it's a completely different entity. It's an energy entity. Even though we do get a little bit of a human face later on, but I think that's just Carter's reflection. They mimic in the crystal. But again, another little loose end they're tying up here with Jack not getting over the death of his son and not making things right with his partner, who I can't remember her name now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Mrs. O'Neill. Yep, Sarah. Sarah, that's the one, yeah. In this respect, the you know the alien entity, that was done very well. The backstory, we learn what happened as the entity that has disguised itself as Jack uh, tries to get to grips with this host it's taken over or it's mimicking. We learn that Sarah, after initially blaming Jack, doesn't hold him guilty. Jack holds himself guilty. She forgave him a long time ago. The very fact that it was Jack that pretty much broke the marriage by pulling away, not willing to talk about anything. Not unusual, it has to be said. Cannot really open up to the extent they need to get over something so tragic and save the marriage. Mm. It was interesting that his father-in-law had no animosity to him either. Yeah. I think Jack was a good husband, a good father, and we learned that through this episode. Yeah, and that's it. It was an accident. No one sort of holds him responsible. I didn't need the lightning and the... <laughs> At the end, like Sarah's going to be pretty messed up in the head after seeing her <laughs> husband sparking out. Well, I'm not sure we really needed young Charlie O'Neill. You know? Yeah, that too. Uh, yeah, that isn't your son. That's an, that's an alien, but don't tell anybody. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there was plenty wrong with this episode, but by and large, it kind of hit the marks it needed to mm. and gave us some decent backstory. And again, some good acting from RDO as well. Yep. So a definite Cree. Cree for me. Right, the knocks. The very old do not always do as they're told. No, <laughs> the very young do not as they're told. Once again, Tilk with his uh, abundance of knowledge. I think it happens with a meeting and they're going, well, you've done all these missions and haven't found anything useful. And Tilk suggests a planet where an invisible creature, something that uh, Apophis has been hunting for a while, and they go to try and ambush it. But uh, while there, they discover that Apophis and his cronies are there looking for it as well. Yeah, incredibly bad time in there. We probably should say the episode was called The Knox. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Written by Hart Hansen, directed by Charles Carell, aired September the 12th, 1997. Guest starring Armin Shimmerman from his Buffy and, well, Star Trek days, most notably DS9, of course. Mm. Apophis makes another appearance, Peter Williams, decked out all in his gold armour. <laughs> Salad gold. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, just just that the contrast between that and the forest is just it's so shiny. Yeah, he's not worried about camouflage. Mm -mm. Behold, your god has arrived. 
and no flags go up when they step through the gate and it immediately disappears behind them. It's like, well, it should be here somewhere. That should have been a warning. Oh, uh, how did you use to find it? Uh, we put a marker on it and tracked it back. Thank you for that information, Tor. Yeah, that should have been, we need a full investigative unit here. Not SG-1, but hell no. Apophis there. Can we take him? Of course we can. Not a problem. And they all get killed. And you go, what the hell is going on here? Episode 8, series over. It was a great scene. And again, just one of those what-ifs. They didn't really go head-to-head with a Pop 4, and here they do. And, of course, he's got his little shield on his hand, which stops Jack from being able to take the kill shot. But It was rather embarrassing ambush. Well, you've got Daniel there. He can point a gun, maybe. He's not the Rambo we get later on in the series. Even if the gate hadn't vanished, could they have got reinforcements without Poffers knowing? We assume he came through the gate, he didn't come through by ship, because, well... That's kind of the whole point of the knock, you know, they don't let ships, because there's no reason to. Yeah. Ship just come through the gate. Yeah, and that's it. Like, even if it's just Apophis and his couple of, his first Prime and one other, surely a couple of well-placed SG teams at the gate be able to just block him from coming back. I don't know if he'd be ballsy enough just to <laughs> do a full frontal assault. Well, he's got his shield, he can just walk up and do what he wants, I suppose. But Yeah, I mean, what are the odds somebody figures out you want a, a low-velocity projectile? And that's, again, this whole whole shield and everything else can you just go up and grab him yeah just just walk up <laughs> just just walk up and Hold grab on. him on the wrist or get tilt to come up behind and give him a bear hug yeah pile on him everybody yeah a knife can get through <laughs> or a dart this is really an episode where the guest stars the alien species shine though mm. well written well developed throw the writers threw us down a path that we were happy to go along these are primitive people they have some sort of magic some sort of spiritual belief then we learn that whatever they can do is real. And then we learn that, well, maybe it's not directly magic. It's not directly spiritual. These people are incredibly highly advanced, so much so that they can do things that look like magic. Mm. And they've got the patience of a saint. <laughs> that does, like the older, the old man, like he's oh, 900 or something. Some <laughs> About 400 or something. 400, yeah. Like very longevity and... They're very peaceful, and that's why they revive Shackle as well as SG-1. Yeah, they can't really tell any difference. You know, this life has to be saved, so we will do it. What that person does with their life is done up to them. Yeah, but even like they say later that these people come and hunt the Fenry and and leave without it time and time again. Like, they should know that they're there for no good reason. But, yeah, since it wasn't their doing that killed him, they're going to revive him <laughs> and let SG-1 deal with it. Yeah, ultimately, all works out in the end. Poffus does get away, obviously. SG-1 are, are fine. The Knox and Teus are Michelin. I think he respects enough about Jack, about how SG-1 actually eventually behaved, enough to reveal the secret. <laughs> They're not too worried about the gold. A floating city that we never see again. <laughs> yeah, pity that, isn't it? You think about it, they could have easily have done an episode where they visit the city or they get an invitation to the city and we find that the knocks only look like bunches of twigs when they go camping. They, you know, <laughs> no, they're just silver space suited every other time. Mm. Well, that's, I suppose, budget. How do you show something that's far advanced like that on a floating city? Especially out there to get the invisibility technology. But here's a city that's floating. Anti-grav. Yeah. Anything. Yeah. Medicines. Right then, so, what do you think about the Knox? Should we re-watch it, or should we skip it? I think so, Cree. Cree, yeah. Come try ya! 
Right then, up next, Brief Candle. The planet Argos, SG-1 visit Temple of Pelops. Uh, they find some interesting statues. A woman comes up, really pregnant. Sam is expected to deliver the baby. Why? Because she's a woman. <laughs> Pretty much that's it. Daniel, obviously, though, uh, ends up doing the job. We learn the very next day that the baby is now about six or seven years old. Something's going on in this world. <laughs> They're invited to a party. Jack partakes of uh, pizza. Finds himself married. <laughs> sexy dance. Very attractive native woman. Have a kip, spend the night. Well, things you shouldn't do while on an alien planet. Eat, screw. <laughs> and sleep. Yeah, they, they really make a mess of this mission. Mm, yep. But we do get some fantastic old Jack makeup as he gets older and older. <laughs> oh, I love it, yeah. And and the, the really modern piece of technology, the portable television. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Original air date for this was September the 19th, 1997. The story was by Stephen Barnes, written by Catherine McCallion Powers. Catherine Powers again? Yeah, she's back. <laughs> oh, she's back. <laughs> Directed by Mario as a party. Bobby Phillips plays uh, Kinthia. Bobby Phillips, probably better known for Sequest. Gabrielle Miller, well-known actress, eventually, maybe not so much back then, plays Thetis. Gary Jones makes his an, another appearance as uh, Walter Harriman, where he... Daryl Roffer is back as well. They do find out that the Gawal in question, Pelops, was doing some uh, nanite research on, on reproduction and ageing, perhaps to design a host that was superior to native humanoid. Mm. And force evolution, because they only live for about 100 days. <laughs> the generations go through pretty quick. Let's face it, if you're uh, of legal age after two days... <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> that makes Voyager and Neelix and Kez... Far more realistic. <laughs> hey, I get that reference now. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> now to finish that series, <laughs> don't know about this one. It's a lot of a lot of fun, loving young people having parties. And... Yeah, basically, there's there's a lot about the episode is pretty much throwaway, but you do get some nice interaction between Jack and Kinthia. Mm. There is chemistry there. There is emotion there. The very fact that you know near the end he goes for a walk and you know just along the beach. Just by pure chance, they're outside of the range of this system. And so, kind of the key to partly solving the mystery. Again, it's SG-1 totally turning a world upside down. We don't really know what happens to these people after the fact. Don't worry about that. It's probably something that, that may have been worth looking into after the fact. But, uh, well, <laughs> Daniel, uh, Jack's got to uh, live with the fact that he messed around where he probably should have done, no matter how what sort of dance she was doing for him or what he ate. <laughs> he got drugged. Yeah, Mal Reynolds on Firefly. She put a, a wreath of flowers on my head and gave me a bowl to drink from. You're married. <laughs> oh, right. I swear I put up a fight. <laughs> and Jane, I got a stick. <laughs> uh, he gets a village voted to him, so yeah. he's all right later on. I think that's the difference. Firefly was out and out, humour... That their episode eventually turned dark because it was hijacking and whatnot. Brief candle, out and out humour, and then it got dark because these people were living and dying at the will of a, a system lord mm. who really didn't give a monkeys about them. It, they were just experiment animals for experimentation. Well, that's it. I think apart from a couple of the uh, the snappy one-liners between Jack and Daniel going at each other. Here and into season two, it's really probably season three or four where we start to get some of that humour in the series. 
Brief Handle. This is an episode I would like to say Cree with a really high-pitched lilt in my voice. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm going to say Cree because I think you don't need to watch it. Yeah, there's nothing, nothing in this episode that sort of carries on. One mention to Jack getting old later on the season. Don't remind me, and no one else wants to remind you as well. So, yeah, Cree here as well. This is more like it. Off you go. <laughs> SG1, Daniel's looking at some old videos and discovers that the gate was open long before he come along. They head off to Heliopolis. This episode is, of course, The Torment of Tantalus. I was going to say, showing a different episode on Wiki. Oh, sorry. I've skipped it. <laughs> <laughs> you skipped. All right, next up, Thor's Hammer. SG1 visits <laughs> planet Chimeria. No, it's not Chimera. Chimeria. 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 P3X974. We get our Viking tribe, well, descendants anyway, Dover by four of the Asgard. Although we don't know he's Asgard yet. Hilk gets beamed away, and along with Jack, into a labyrinth. Have to try and make their way out of there without uh, Junior getting killed all themselves. And there's something in the labyrinth, as there always is. I am your father. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you, you've got to if you're if you're if you're going to have a voice actor play this role of this evil malicious beast, you can't really go wrong, can you, with James Earl Jones? Well, it's just a matter if you're going to have the the creature speak. If it speaks, it speaks as James Earl Jones. If it grunts or growls, it growls as Frank Welker. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Yeah, a nice idea, though, the introduction that the Eunice was one of the first hosts of the gold. Very strong, very long-lived, but lacked some of the dexterity, some of the finesse that the human host eventually gave them. That's it. If they're going off the, the principle that they took humans from ancient Egypt and seeded the galaxy with them, that only can put the gold as being the 10,000-ish years old when humans could evolve and look pretty in their eyes but uh yeah. here it's it's just good to show that no there was something bipedal before they used to take over and i don't know why some wouldn't stay as unas because they'd be a lot more powerful than a handsome <laughs> ball i imagine that you know they just get looked down upon by the rest of the system lords mm. yeah there's a dress code literally yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the suit that you wear <laughs> well you can imagine some of that when they we first yeah. get the the others and like balls yeah, this like, chair is a bit small yeah. Yes, it is. <laughs> Get yourself a new body. Daniel's looking around and sees the Nunas in the corner and Ball's like, don't worry, that's just that's just Frank. Yeah, yeah he's a traditionalist. Yep. <laughs> right, we learn that Gawain, Gawain is the first, the natives that they meet. She's kind of the uh, the leader of her people. The menfolk are out of Viking, which basically means they're out having a booze up. <laughs> there's not a lot to do. The economy of this world has really, really, really depleted. If, if, if you can't, look, if you can't go raiding other people's habitats and things, what do you do with your time? Well, yeah, again, another Catherine Powers episode where the men are off raping and pillaging, or should be. And... <laughs> yeah, she had a problem, I think. Yeah, and the women are at home tending to the gardens, and yeah. And yet she gives us Kendra, played by Galen Gorge, very good character, who has who was once a host for a gold, who got away. Ventured through the mountains and the labyrinth and come out and the yeah. beast was gone was able to influence the Gawal symbiote to visit this world because the rumours was that there was a huge treasure here but nobody survived. And she was able to actually convince a symbiote that together they could survive. So mm. they came through the gate, Thor's hammer, zapped him into the labyrinth, she got out free of the symbiote but still able to use the Gawal technology. 
Yeah, and this gives Daniel that hope, that, the hope for Charay, that something of the host does survive. And You could bring anybody here and get rid of the, the symbiote. Fantastic. So what did they do? <laughs> they shoot it. <laughs> no, stay here, Daniel. We'll bring you food, and after a couple of months, if we ain't got you out, then we'll do something drastic. I think especially, we don't see the Asgard yet, but knowing that it is Asgard technology, we know the Tolans have the technology to disable weapons of all means. I'm pretty sure that the Asgard would be able to disable a human weapon as well. Just the fact that it only stops a gold weaponry or technology from working seems a bit strange. But It does point. seem strange, but you jump forward a few seasons, they would never have considered using gunpowder to shoot little metal projectiles at replicators. Yeah, good point. Plus, the technology is only designed to take a host or a Jafar away, so they're only going to be using... Yeah, modern battle infantry, you know, Kevlar this, Kevlar that, and then you get shot by an arrow. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it'll stop a high-velocity round at a couple of hundred yards, no problem, but that arrow it went through that Kevlar like nobody's business. Mm. Yeah, Thor's hammer, a definite creep. Yeah, I think we get a little bit better story here later on when we get back with Force Chariot, so it's a creep from me. Since you had already started this one, you go ahead. <laughs> Alright. The Torment of Ta- right again. The Torment of Tantalus. Daniel's watching some old videotapes and uh, discovers that Dr. Ernest Littlefield went through to Stargate back in 1945, well before he come on the scene. They travel to Heliopolis, PB2908. Thank you, <laughs> these damn planet names. And um, go looking for him. We've got Robert C. Cooper back as the writer and directed by Jonathan Glasner. Fantastic episode. Yep, this is one of a spoiler for later. When I go back to season one, this is one of the ones I throw in first. The very fact that it's a bit of a mystery how they managed to get the Stargate working. You've got to give them a little bit of leeway. Uh, they were randomly dialing. They were randomly supplying it with different sorts of power. Paul McGillian was playing the younger in this little field. Nice mm. touch that. Another Catherine Lampford, Nancy McClure, played this Catherine Lampford. Many an actress has played Catherine Lampford over the years. <laughs> well, actually, two actresses in this episode, uh, Elizabeth Hoffman as well, played the older mm. Catherine. Yep. And I don't think it's any spoiler either that uh, there's probably more backstory and information <laughs> about the Stargate here in 1945 than what we get in Origins. Yeah, you're probably right. I've not had a chance to. I haven't had a chance to have a dig at oranges on the podcast yet. So, <laughs> boo origins, boo. But here we get the uh, the meeting place of the four great races, races, races. Again, the world building here. We get the ancients, the furlings. Haven't met those yet. Yeah, I just love it. And again, that the torment of Tantalus. The information here. Daniel doesn't want to leave after they discover the DHDs deep being destroyed, and Castle is on the edge of a cliff, about to be swallowed by the sea. Yeah, you could understand if it was safe for him to stay for two or three months. You might even say, yeah, no problem. But the very fact that we are on a knife edge, we have got to go now. Mm. But, 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 but at least it's earnest saying, you know, this isn't important. You are important. Life is important. Ernest at least has got a chance to live his last years with the woman he loved, who thankfully didn't remarry or anything and didn't get on with her life. <laughs> That might have been a little bit awkward. But yeah, fantastic episode. King Curtis, fantastic as Dr. Ernest Littlefield. King Curtis, I'd say I'd seen him more in Cheers than anything else. <laughs> and even that, he was only a, an irregular guest actor. Fantastic episode. Right down to naked Ernest hugging everybody. 
Uh, yes, and Jack realising that the map doesn't check for everything when it goes to a planet. Yes, live and learn. Mm. <laughs> First thing, make sure the map is there, make sure the DHD is there. Full 360 suite, infrared, ultraviolet, speakers maybe. Hello, anybody there? Unless you really want to creep in, but it won't be the first time that they visit their world and find a few surprises waiting for them. <laughs> yeah, I just, once we got ships, because obviously the gate's gone at this stage from the storm, but the main structure, I think, would still be there for the most part for at least another year or two before the coastal sort of come in and took it away. But I think once we start uh, learning more about the ancients and going down that route. I wonder if it's counterproductive if you have access to that much knowledge so quickly in the series, though. Mm. Well, knowing and understanding it again, like even Ernest there taking down notes and spending, he says he spent a lifetime there trying to study it and still didn't know everything about it. And like even more, like if he was was just a scientist or something in in the military back then, all these alien languages, not knowing languages previously, maybe like Daniel, where he can say, oh, well, this looks like ancient Greek or something like that. Just it'd be a very hard place to start without even knowing what it sounds like. Excellent mythology episode, though. Really, mm. really setting the ground. Yep. And in that respect, definite Cree. Yep, agreed. Up next, Bloodlines. October the 10th, 1997. Story by Mark Saracini. Written by Jeffrey F. King and directed by Mario Azapardi. Cool symbiotes. They need symbiotes, so they're going to visit Chulak and Nick one. They get a little bit of surprise from Tilk to find out that he was married and he has a son. And it's time for Ryak, his lad, to have his uh, first implantation. Tilk isn't very happy about that. (laughs) And we find out that while he's been gallivanting around the galaxy, his wife and son have been outcast. Obviously, Tilk has been branded a chauvin, a traitor, by his god and his people. His house has been burnt down. Dramatic that, I thought. (laughs) His wife and son have literally been outcast. They've had to beg for everything they had. She doesn't specify what she had to do, but I wonder exactly what she had to do to get the priest to agree to give an outcast young mm. man a symbiote. Yeah. Let's just say that she'd probably do whatever it was required to make sure her son was healthy. Oh, and Braytag. <laughs> Lucky this isn't a Catherine Powers episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good God. Uh, and I forgot. And Braytag. <laughs> and just to underline the fact, Braytag. What can you say about Tony, Tony Amendola portraying Braytag? The very old and wise warrior... Tutor to Tilk and many other Jafar. Doesn't doesn't trust easily, but once you win his trust, he will do anything for you. Mm. Yes, and he's a spry old age of 133. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and he, he kicks Jack's backside all over the place. <laughs> yeah. Apart from the the introduction of Braytek here, I'd know we put this one below Emancipation. I don't really care for the, the Tilk-centric episodes. I don't care about Chinook. I don't care about any of that. Yeah, the the story about his wife and his son, Ryak was never a, a character that you really liked, especially when he was younger. He, it was I don't know if it was the the young kid trope. I don't need I don't need a story about this. I don't need the family aspect of it. As we said about Cold Lazarus, the manifestation of Charlie held up so many problems with that episode. Hmm. Can it almost derailed it? Here. Okay, it's not so bad, but Braytac. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's enough for this episode to be a Cree. It mm. is enough. You cannot avoid the first introduction of this character that will become so important throughout the series. Yeah, no, I agree. Cree here. 
Fire and water. Oh God, Catherine Powers. She wrote a lot in the first season, didn't she? <laughs> I don't, honestly, I didn't realise. Perhaps doing an episode a week, I, I didn't really take that much notice. But now, that's not a last one for the season either. Fire and water. Story by Brad Wright and Catherine Powers. Written by Catherine Powers. Directed by Alan Eastman. Aired October seventeenth, nineteen ninety-seven. SG One visit a world, and Daniel gets burnt to death. The team return to Stargate Command. Convinced he's dead, but how many hours have gone by? They've only—they think they've been off world for about half an hour, but they've been off world a lot longer, about twelve, fourteen hours or something like that. Mm. Yeah, they come back soaking wet, but have memories of Daniel burning. <laughs> like they—they they went into the water to escape the fire, and their only memory is of a, a close-up Daniel burning. There's, there's no yeah, environment. Bubbles. <laughs> bubbles. You see a lot of bubbles in this episode. <laughs> bubbles. Yeah, bubbles everywhere. When the psychiatrist is actually going through a group session, it becomes evident that there are key phrases that kind of set them off. And further physical examination reflects that there's actually evidence that something's gone on. Yep, and we soon discover that there's an alien under the water in his own little lab. He's kept Daniel alive, obviously because he's probably the only one that knows the information he seeks of ancient Babylon. Which again is good, yes. just a little bit more world building of more culture on Earth that's not been taken <laughs> taken off world. Well, I suppose taken off world, or just more of the gold being on Earth, not just in Egypt. Yeah, Gerard Plunkett returns to uh, SG One under all the prosthetics as Nem. He's uh, wants information on his mate Omaroka. We eventually learn that she visited the Earth to defend the people of the planet against the the system lords and paid for it with a well. We soon paid for it with her life. Mm. Bit of a downer, really, for Nem. <laughs> He's an honourable uh, being. Eventually, uh, he returns Daniel to the surface. Memories all come back, of course. And ultimately, not not a bad episode. An interesting episode. Really, really on the fence whether it's Cree or Cree. <laughs> well, you, you mentioned before in Torment to Tantalus how Catherine waited a couple of decades and not remarried. Here he is, Nim. Yeah. centuries, 5,000 years or so after his mate disappeared and he's still looking for her. <laughs> it's all right, get over her. She's gone. But it's just amazing, like, he's still alive. Like, if that's her mate, his mate was Omaraka back in ancient Babylon, how long do these beings live for? Well, maybe like other aquatic mammals, they can live, the whales and sharks can live for a long time. Sea turtles, tortoise, you know, land-based alternatives can can live for a long time. Yeah, true. If his race is high technology as well, you don't really know what sort of, probably not a sarcophagus, but maybe something similar. Mm. Maybe a cryo storage or something. You know, he actually wakes up every hundred years or so, see what's happening, or the alarm goes off when someone goes paddling. Yeah, or when someone comes through the gate, and this time it was someone from Earth. Yeah. Unfortunately, they've got to walk fairly close to the water. So <laughs> I doubt this guy is going to go traipsing a few miles inland, unlike Aquaman, who... <laughs> his companion who treats me all over the solid desert yeah they, they take to walking out of the water pretty well <laughs> yeah. instead of being like a dolphin or a whale beached but that's another film yeah I I think it's a Cree from me we get to see some bubbles and some glass tech but it in the end doesn't really add a lot to the story going forward I suppose I'd have to say Cree as well because if I was in a hurry I wouldn't watch it yeah Hathor Okay, this uh, one's yeah. going to be interesting. One of the mothers of all Gould, so she's a Gould queen, wakes up from her Mayan temple and is drawn to SGC and the gate. 
takes over the base with her purple mist breath and uh, gets in a hot tub, makes some babies, and uh, thanks to Daniel, once again, sleeping on the job. Yeah, takes command, and it's up to the women. Try and get the base back. Brad Turner directed and written by David Bennett, Karen, and J. Larry Carroll. It could have been so much better. I don't know how it could get any worse. <laughs> Although some of the dialogue, half or needing Daniel's, I can't remember the term she says, but it wasn't much. It wasn't much better than it wasn't genetic material. I think it was a little bit worse than that. We made a lot of fun about man juice or something. Yeah. <laughs> well, we we know what it is. We put two and two together. Yeah. She, she needs Daniel's seed. Something like that. You know what? This episode has got a lot of problems. The dialogue, some of the direction, the acting, the idea of the men, the men being overtaken by pheromones from a, a female system lord, a queen. Okay, yeah, I can go. I can go with that. Not a problem at all. Not affecting the females, or not choosing to affect the females. That I can't understand. That's from a tactical point of view. Why risk half of the people on the base? Well, it's late nineties military installation. Okay, ten percent of the base will probably female. Well, if that. yeah. And again, if this was a Catherine Powers episode, then Sam would probably be annoyed. Hey, why don't you just come after me? Yeah. But when the girls get together, they get armed. They get weapons. They show themselves worthy of defending the base. Okay, they do get captured. They do have to use their feminine wiles. Oh, and the stupidity of some men in the armed forces. Boobies! To... <laughs> I know. We're oh. not even talking if it was during that era. If it was Pamela Anderson in a little red bathing suit giving him the eye. It was a bunch of female soldiers in fatigues going, do you want a good time, big boy? Yeah. That's just, yeah, the spy who shagged me. It's just, check out these big boys. Praise to Janet. She went for it. She yeah. went for it big time. Yeah. In fact, I've got a feeling that maybe after a divorce, Janet may have been, you know, needing a little bit. You know, she, she'd thrown herself into her work. So uh, maybe a little close contact. I would have loved the line from her to Sam just, they're not going to remember this, right? <laughs> well, just just show some sort of hesitation. Yes, it's that again. So they all get so smitten for Hathor, yet he's going to be duped by someone else. Well, that's it. Daniel, he totally falls under the spell. The General, Jack, Sam's totally appalled by their behaviour. Can't figure out exactly what's going on. I think this is the first time we get to see Janet's office. <laughs> She's always in the infirmary, in the med bay, whatever. The final fight, Hathor in the hot tub, which looks like it's from, you know, a cheap minor league baseball team. It's not very fancy, is it, really? Well, I don't know why co-ed showers, or I don't know why there'd be a bathtub in there. <laughs> it's a military base. It's not, oh, the, these soldiers coming back. Let's have a jacuzzi and <laughs> unease the stress from a long day off-world. It would just be likely that maybe there were some VIP suites on base, mm. and some of them would have an ensuite or something. But unfortunately, it, it doesn't look good. The symbiotes in the water don't look good. The flames. The only really good thing, when everything opens up, the flames are going everywhere, and we see the, the impression of Hathor getting away. Mm. Because how many times, every time I see that, you always think, did I see that? And you know you saw <laughs> it, but even though it's done well, that little in your mind thinking, did I actually see that? Did that actually happen? Because, of course, Hathor's got to get away. Yeah. Yeah, and we got the case here, too, of the... Uh... The reverse camera for coming out of the water instead of going into the water. Yo, yes. Completely yeah. dry. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> we get Jack Jafard as well, which is a bit of body horror. <laughs> I'm thinking that. I'm going to say, that scar ain't going anywhere. No. 
no amount of fine stitching is going to be able to cover that up. No. And that's probably it. Every every time he gets up, he looks down and goes, oh, Christ. That's why he hates the toe crow and the Jeff Arson one. Yeah. Because he's reminded of it every single day. <laughs> he's got to explain it. Every time he's with a woman, what's that? How do you get, how'd you get that wound? I got shot in Iraq. How'd you get that one? I got shot in Iran. How'd you get that? Don't ask. <laughs> but I think at the end of the day, it's probably a Cree. I'm going to go with Cree. This, for all its badness, is one, it's like Spock's brain. <laughs> it is one I'll watch even though I know it's no good. Yep. Yeah, that's so bad it's good territory. <laughs> oh, so you're going Cree? Yeah, I think I'll go Cree. Oh, well done. Come <laughs> Okay then, up next, Singularity. Written by Robert C. Cooper, directed by Mario Zapardi, original air date, October the 31st, 1997. The planet Hanker, which has an observation post, spying on a black hole. Unfortunately, when SG-1 arrived, they find a load of dead bodies, including the natives and SG-7. Take some precautions, airborne bacteria, virus of some sort, until they find one sole survivor, Cassandra. The mystery deepens. It's kind of odd that SG-1 has now turned into the uh, the morgue, <laughs> tagging dead bodies. They can do anything. Like I say, the idea of SGC setting up a remote observation post, uh, looking at stellar phenomena they can't see from Earth, perfectly fine. Great idea. Wouldn't be cheap, but a good idea. A little bit unusual that they interacted with the local population, but we didn't really get much of that in the story. The revelation that... Tilt can identify a system lord ship through a telescope. <laughs> God knows how far away. The idea that a system lord, Nerty, could actually use a child as a weapon to destroy a Stargate mm. was brilliant. Incredibly cold and ruthless, which is what we expect from system lords. Yeah, she exactly played to exactly what would do. Would take her back and, yeah. Yeah, she knows enough about humanity that they won't abandon a young girl. At some point, she would go through the gate... At some point, she will go through the gate again. Mm. And that's all she needed to do. First sort of example of the ghouls are making a play for Earth. They know now know that we're out there and we're a pest and we need to be destroyed. Yeah, that's it. There's no concerted attack on the planet. It's just that if the opportunity arises, we're going we're gonna to hurt them. <laughs> it was amusing that Jack was actually able to use his astronomy experience to try to explain the black hole to Tilk. <laughs> I'm sure Tilk's experienced one before, has seen one before. You'd think. Maybe, maybe not. Yeah. Although we do learn later on that he doesn't know that much about uh, interstellar starships. He knows he's been a passenger on one, but maybe not so much uh, controlling him a pilot or anything like that. Once we do finally get on those ships at the end of the season, we, there's not many windows. No. no <laughs> Katie Stewart plays the young Cassandra, does a, a very good job. We get some nice Carter and Sandra interaction. Again, Janet plays a major part in this episode. We get ultimately the idea that when they learn that they can't take Cassandra through the Stargate again because the uh, Naquida and Potassium build up in a system, it will basically destroy the gate and destroy half the planet. <laughs> Destroys half the base by just testing it. Taking her into old nuclear storage facility. I like the idea that Sam would go down with her. I think they were very ham-fisted in the way Sam reacted to it after that. Yeah. I don't think Sam would have left her in the first place. Hmm. But even just having that maternal bond there where at least Ripley had a child before she went after Newt, we're here. Yeah, she's sort of pulled more by the fact it's a young girl and not by the fact that um, there was a daughter or anything. 
Again, though, Cassandra plays a major part in some episodes further down the line, so at least they are making use of the character. Mm. And overall, a pretty decent episode. So, Cree. Yeah, Cree here too. Contraya! Alright, we travel to a planet, Cartago, and uh, once there, we realise that one of the inhabitants recognises Tilk from his early days of Jafaring, <laughs> directed by William Garrity and directed by Mario Ansipolo. <laughs> and uh, Tom asked, I'm horrible with names. Yeah. Tilk has to answer for his crimes as a Jafar. Yes, a clip episode. I think it was needed. Eventually, going from world to world, they're going to find one that someone recognises Tilk from what he was doing. How they went about it, yeah, it's... <laughs> the young man was passionate. The young man was passionate about putting Tilk to death. Yeah, that's... we're trying to find something good to say about this episode. It's difficult. Especially, like, we get Tilk to just resign to his fate. He he knows he's he's done horrible things, and we need Daniel and Jack to put forward that, well, that was that was the old Tilk. <laughs> when I suppose it's still Tilk, but it's um, doing so much better now, and he shouldn't be killed. It's a nice argument. I mean, Tilk is willing to accept the punishment because, in his eyes, he is guilty. The idea that ultimately comes to fruition is that the man that served Apophis is not the man that serves the Tari. Mm. And the fact that he threw himself in into the crossfire to save some of the natives kind of sealed the deal. This isn't the man who gunned people down. And I did like the idea that even when he was working for Apophis, Tilk chose which person to kill. Yeah, well, that's it. We see in one of those flashbacks and the father that's killed, it's he's old, he's got one leg, He's the village is made or survives on being able to escape into the forest when the gates open and... Again, Tilk being the little little saboteur <laughs> at the top there, sort of. But the young man doesn't understand. Well, you've killed my father. We get the viewpoint of Tilk. We see the old man reaching out, which, from his son's perspective, is him begging for his life. Mm. Whereas from Tilk's perspective, we see it as a plea to kill me. You know, take me, take me. There are nice little story elements, but overall, this isn't an episode I enjoy watching. It's not an episode I'll criticise the acting or the writing and there are episodes that I will criticize the acting and the writing <laughs> this isn't necessarily one of them it's just dull mm. yeah and even the, the culture itself's never really looked at that, that that closely like they've got this little marketplace here near the gate that's patched roofs and that then there's a three-story building for their courthouse <laughs> a very sturdy looking building yeah yeah it's, it's probably one I don't need to revisit again and it's one I probably haven't revisited for a while so I think that's a Cree from me a definite Cree. And considering it come back, it was released in January after a two, three-month break. Coming back to this after Singularity would be a <laughs> bit hard to take, too. Yeah, not ideal, is it? No. Contraya! Enigma. Written by Catherine Powers, directed by William Geraghty. Aired January the 30th, 1998. This is an episode where SG-1 visits a planet which is under volcanic, well, huge volcanic eruption. The ash falling down steadily. They decide to leave the planet, uh, but they just spot a body. Then they notice more bodies. Some of them are alive, <laughs> and they rescue them. And the people are not very happy. They, In fact, they're pissed. <laughs> <laughs> One of the Tolans, Omak, the leader, he is seriously annoyed. Yeah, they're waiting for a transport ship to come and pick them up, and we took them away from that chance, and they've got no way of getting... There's no gate on their new world where they're going to. They're only getting there by a ship, and... The humans have pretty much stopped from being able to do that. Truth be told, though, at that point, unless that ship arrived within the time frame that SG-1 was on the planet, 
those people weren't going to survive. We don't really see a lot of the toll on medicine, whether they could be revived or anything like that. If they like, they are as advanced as they seem to be, maybe there's something there. But yeah, SG one wasn't just going to leave me to die. It's better to do something and be wrong than not to do something. Yeah. Tobin Bell was fantastic as Omok Golden <laughs> Sanford, who appears two or three more times in Stargate as Narim. Tom McBeath, Colonel Harry Maybourne makes his appearance. Yes, the introduction of the NID. Yes. <laughs> you can't go wrong with Maybourne. Just imagine looking Maybourne and Omak in the same room. <laughs> <laughs> Who would kill the other one first? Colonel Maybourne, do you want to play a game? <laughs> <laughs> we get Schrodinger's cat's joke. Yep. Narim, obviously their world, not very heavy on animals, it seems. Mm. Interesting. I can say, wonder, wonder if they embraced vegetarianism and suddenly realised that 90% of the animals on the planet serve no purpose anymore. <laughs> well, you take farming or domesticated animals out of the equation, that gets rid of a few. Yeah, it does, yeah. That's probably why he may not have seen a cat. But then again, he hasn't seen a bird either. He seems amazed by a bird. There's a lot a lot to be said, but I like the idea that there's a human world out there that was taken from Earth, hasn't retained some of their technology, built upon it, didn't suffer through the Dark Ages like mm. humanity did, so are generations ahead of us, technology-wise. And the twist that they will not share it, yeah. because it could be bad for you. Well, that's the whole reason their planet's in turmoil now from memory, is the fact they lent technology to a nearby planet and it destroyed themselves and... Is it that what happened? They destroyed themselves and that yeah. put their, their own planet into chaos? Very, very quickly. Yeah. Damaged the orbit of their planet. Yep. Oh, uh, yeah. That's a, that was a mistake that they probably won't make again, which explains a lot. Mm. And it's just, that again, that introduction here of what if we hadn't suffered the Dark Ages? We're going to find more cultures out there later on that didn't either, and just what humanity can become. We get to see some very nice toys Yep. And they start yeah. phase shifting through walls and not falling through floors, and we won't go back into that discussion again. Gerard Plunkett returns as Councillor Tuplo, also Liar from the Knox. I've got to admit, I did like Omar the character because he was so intractable. Mm. He had his he had his orders, he had his worldview. He wouldn't budge from it. He really had to be beaten over the head with facts and logic to actually get him to agree, even to accept help from Daniel. And even that was a long shot. Mm. He was a bit of a jerk when it came to some of the other people that were offering a helping hand. But I think the funny thing is, too, when you get to finally get to Between Two Fires later on, Nareem says, no, no, he, he fought very much of you. And like, <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, no, he actually did like you. Yeah, he comes across as a jerk here, but this is just the liking you jerk, not the not the hating you jerk. <laughs> Never mind. You didn't, we didn't really get that impression, though, unfortunately. No, no. <laughs> Narim really does take a shine to Sam. Serious, almost creepy level shine. Especially once, when he wants to record his feelings and whatnot. And, oh, that's a... Yeah. <laughs> it's even more creepy in a future episode when we find that he's, <laughs> his AI in his house has got Sam's voice. <laughs> yeah, it makes you wonder what he gets up to at night. Yeah, well, good job recording. <laughs> recording he's not the expecting voice. guests. <laughs> How she greets him. Serenade with some sort of local Thailand song. A good episode, though. Good mm. episode. Uh, maybe except for Talk, he didn't get to do a lot. Not unusual in the first season, it has to be said, but... Yeah. Good character interaction, good dialogue. Mayborn, fantastic. Uh, Narim and Omok, fantastic. Sam, a little bit of humour about the cat, the books, quantum physics. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, what, that's what you call it. Yeah, how quaint. we primary school stuff. <laughs> Perfectly understandable, though. And the knocks, the confrontation at the end. 
what are you doing, Mayborn? Mm. He was totally going off his rocker. He was willing to fire on these aliens because they weren't doing what he was telling them to. Yeah, he went straight to supervillain straight away. He did, yeah. Not even accepting the fact that these people could help us if we are willing to trust them and give them time to get to know us. Mm. Let's not cut all, burn the bridges right at the start by throwing heavy weapons into the mix. (laughs) I say the problem's solved by the Nox. They take the Tolan off-world, setting them up on a a new world, a new planet. So a definite agree for me. Yeah, I just, uh, the introduction to the Tolan, the NID coming in, getting Mayborn coming as well. So it's definitely a Cree here as well. Solitudes. Martin Wood back at the chair and Brad Wright. So another one of these mythology building episodes. Uh, we get Carter O'Neill trapped on an icy planet when the uh, Stargate malfunctions on their journey back to Earth. But maybe it's not another planet as we soon discover that Antarctica. We get some good callbacks here to the movie, the whole vibration, the vibrating gate and yeah, some weird-looking CG at the start as we get a flying map. <laughs> <laughs> this was a great episode for fantastic dialogue and interaction between Sam and Jack, Amanda and Richard. Mm. The twist in the story, that was brilliant as well. Daniel and Tilk, Daniel more so than Tilk, got plenty to do. As you say, the, the actual vibration of the gate, that callback, that made perfect sense. The idea of two Stargates on one planet... Why? Because the Earth was a valuable resource to the world, mm. and more than one of them wanted to cherry-pick the the peoples of the planet. Yeah, and that's it makes perfect sense. If one gate's lost, of course they're going to fly in. Ra's going to bring in another gate to keep on pillaging the, yeah. w- the world. One of those things, too, of just energy fire on the Stargate on the other side overloads and it jumps its tracks. We sort of get that whole thing that comes back late in later seasons as well to help out and hinder us. Daniel and Tilt come back and Jack and Sam don't. Maybe a bit overly sensitive, you would have thought. Mm. Maybe the gate system is showing its age a bit. Yeah. Routine maintenance isn't being done anymore. (laughs) No. The whole idea that Sam and Jack are on this alien world, you know, we get the MacGyver joke. (laughs) Who who hasn't seen that? Even people that haven't seen Stargate have probably seen that clip. Mm. And, you know, when she finally climbs to the surface, she finally gets through and she looks out and thinks, that's it, there's nowhere to go. Frozen wasteland. Yeah, literally, they're in the middle of middle of nowhere. All hope is lost. How are we going to be saved from this? And and Daniel comes through, mm. and then they kind of nearly blow the entire episode with how quickly everybody gets to this place, miles and miles above McMurdo. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's I mean, it. A team's going to get there and find them well before, well before General Hammond gets down there. <laughs> yeah, McMurdo could have been there six hours before General Hammond, but no. He's going to save them. Well, <laughs> I'm not going to criticise the episode too much because the joke about the gun actually negates General Hammond getting there so quick. <laughs> but we do get some time with Sam having to dig out the DHD as well and do some work on it. And Well, Earth never had a DHD for her to study, so this is probably the first time she's actually had some time to look at one properly. And she's dialing out and can't get the seven Chevron to lock. Yeah, initially a power requirement or something like that, but... No, it's because there's already a, a you know a device on the network. Mm. Yeah, the phone call's busy. How, yeah, yeah. How, how brilliant is that? You know, and that's the beauty of it. You've got a sci-fi concept, something like the Stargate wormhole travel, and you think, okay, what would stop it working? Yeah, you can't dial a certain number. Why? You can't dial a certain number. 
because it's engaged because it's a phone <laughs> brilliant that's it that that may be how, how it came about but the simplicity of the idea works so well mm. it's just a great episode yeah it's a wonder that we don't haven't before or any other time in this franchise go to dial out to go somewhere and not have it work because someone else is using that gate especially for the gold planets like we always seem to be able to dial through right when no one's using the gate yeah we can say we know sam has a list of gates that fail to connect after three or four attempts and then they go into a rotation where when there's any downtime they cycle through them again mm. yeah the most it would have been worth it just once or twice sg1 you have a go and they dial the gate. Oh, no, can't get through. Okay, <laughs> give it five minutes. No, give it another five minutes. What are they doing over there? Go and see them. Stop, stop telling them your life story. <laughs> it's like that computer system at work. Because there's multiple users on the same system, when we want to trigger a sorting some paperwork, there's a queuing system. So if somebody's already activated it, it won't accept something else until their system is processed. So you're pressing F5 to refresh screen, just waiting for it to clear, so you can press commit. And it is so annoying when you press F5 and it says clear and you go to commit and somebody's <laughs> pressed it a microsecond before you. Solitude, though. Big Cree. Yeah, fantastic episode. Another one of the ones I go to in season one. If I've got some time, I'll watch it. <laughs> okay, Tin Man. Written by Jeffrey F. King, directed by Jimmy Kaufman. Aired February the 13th, 1998. SG-1 arrive on a seemingly abandoned planet of Altair and are soon knocked out. Boring wiki <laughs> synopsis. <laughs> they wake up and they decide to return to Earth only to find that they are robots. Rather gruesome cutting into the arm and silver goo coming out. That was, that was rather brutal. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> it, it really was, considering, <laughs> even though it was silver goo and not blood. It, anyway... They find that SG-1 are uh, robots or androids, call them what you will, and that they've got to go back through the gate because of the power requirements. They find that they've been uh, they've been replicated by Harlan. Come try her. Gay Brazawa. Come try her, yes. Fantastic. <laughs> what a wonderful character. Better. You're better. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's the beauty of it. It is this guy who's been in this alien complex for centuries, tasked with keeping it active as the last repository of his people. And even then, he's been re he replicated himself as, as an android. He's going to last for a long time. His companions, they've just given up. Some of them have walked off into the desert, knowing that they'll run out of power eventually. Some have gone through the gate, saying, no, they'll run out of power. He's the last, the very last person trying to keep this huge complex alive. So when actually one walk in, well, hey, volunteers. Mm, four more, <laughs> four more helpers. The whole effort here just to keep this facility going because it's the power source. If it fails, then they're dead. They probably should have made more of the fact that he was keeping the last million inhabitants of this world alive in stasis yeah, or something. Yeah. They should have made more of that. You know, on the surface, you think, well, what's the point? He's keeping this running because he's keeping this running. Plus, I don't really go to the, the side, too, of, well, okay, we need to shut down because of low power. Does that mean you can't be... Repowered up doesn't mean you'd lose all your memory. Because if it's just a case of, we'll shut down until someone can make a battery for you or, or something like that, make something a little bit more efficient. And we see sort yeah. of in later episodes, Sam does work a magic here, or Android Sam, and make some battery packs for him. Even that's just a limited thing as well. Yeah, I think that's one of the, the weaknesses of the design. The RAM is very volatile. It has to have current all the time. Otherwise, it can't remember a damn thing. Yeah. 
We do have a problem though, Tilk, because of his symbiote doesn't replicate fully. He's constantly giving everybody the dirty look. <laughs> Once you know to look for it, it's there all the time. Yeah, Robot Tilk, not happy. Takes a jack with a pipe. Yes, Jack gets his face pushed against the steam pipe. Okay, it doesn't look good, I'll give it... It's not great prosthetic work, but pretty brutal when it's happening. Mm. Unfortunately, Tilt gets zapped, and he'll just have to make another. How can you make another if you haven't got the originals to copy? Oh, uh, oops. <laughs> <laughs> yes, original SG-1 are, are strapped down on these fancy beds. In fancy underwear, <laughs> onesies. How long... Does he go around feeding them and cleaning them up every now and again? Because they're biological, you know. You can't just strap them down and leave them for a few days. Well, I wonder if after so much time, if he even knows that. <laughs> yeah. What do you, you mean I had to feed him? Yeah. <laughs> Won't last three days without water. Oh. Oh, well, never mind. Well, yeah. <laughs> He's a gum. Again, it's like just watching Home, Atlanta season one. Again, McKay, we need food. Body's just laying there next to the DHD. <laughs> We're going to get rained on. <laughs> I miss McKay. <laughs> but again, it's just one of, them, one of them things where culture or an alien race just doesn't get what we are, or his, his sole purpose is to get the robots, get people to help him, and not what happens to the uh, the real team. But we do get some great stuff back and forth between Jack and Jack and, and that as well, especially at the end. Oh, there. yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. And we get more of the same in the episode later on as well. Yeah, yeah. So we're... Uh... <laughs> On the surface, this is a pretty lightweight episode, but it is incredibly fun. It's enjoyable. Jay does a fantastic job as Harlan. You'll be saying to yourself, come try her for days and days afterwards. <laughs> Overall, pretty good episode. Very good episode, yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. Cree here. <laughs> come try her! Right, now we're getting to the meat of season one. Not officially part of the season finale, but so very much part of it in spirit. Yeah. There but for the grace of God. Story by David Kemper, written by Robert C. Cooper, directed by David Weary Smith. Aired February the 20th, 1998. Team visit facility that looks remarkably like the, uh, the complex that we've just seen in Tin Man. <laughs> very mechanical, very mm, mixture of technologies. We see a gold emblem that Tilt identifies as a, as a warning. This world has been cleansed, so that's not good. Daniel goes walkabout, finds this little lab, which looks totally out of place <laughs> compared to the rest of the complex, but it's full of lots of little goodies. Items, ancient archaeological finds, things to pick up and touch and prod, and, well, Daniel, you should know better. What are you going to do? He sees this fancy device, he picks it up. We know something's gone on. Daniel doesn't. Hmm. Jack's no time for this. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Daniel starts picking up anything he can carry. He sees this stone structure with a very highly reflective surface. He touches it, pulls the light, he looks around. Huh, what was that weird? Goes back out and see one and not there. Daniel's all alone. <laughs> Left behind. <laughs> again. <laughs> not again. <laughs> so he dials Earth, comes to the SGC, SGA, and, well, nobody recognises him. He recognises some other people. Colonel Hammond, General O'Neill. Dr. Catherine Do Lampford. <laughs> Dr. Carter. Yeah, everybody he knows, but not quite. Mm. We just need someone with a moustache. We get a yeah. ponytail until later, so that's good enough. This is a great episode. We get the alternate reality where this Earth is under a threat from the gold. They are, they've been penned in. The Earth is under attack. Billions have been killed. 
Daniel Jackson last known location was Egypt. Egypt is gone. The UK gone. <laughs> what, got, what have they got against us? I don't know. We said we just don't want to be part of your empire. Thank you very much. And they nuked us. <laughs> well, that's that's one of the funny parts. Like, yeah, fair enough. London, UK gone, but Egypt. It's like okay, well, that, they obviously would have known that's where the gate originally was with Ra, and that maybe civilization grew around that original spot. Yeah. But in hindsight, that must be important. Yeah, I don't think Cairo is that high on their bombing list. Totally annihilate the US. China and Russia. Sort them three out, then you can take your time cleaning up the rest of the mess. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely fantastic when we saw the uh, attack over Cheyenne Mountain. It wasn't great CGI, but it pressure it gave was brilliant. Mm. Unlike it was landing on the mountain. Yeah, have it coming through a video feed with a bit of snowball sort of helped out a lot there too. Daniel's taking his time to convince these people that he knows what he's talking about. He's got video footage of his SG-1 on planet. Even better... He knows the address of Tulac, oh, no. which is fantastic for the uh, military-minded people because that's where the invasion forces have been coming from. So let's send a bomb. <laughs> yeah, let's new place. What could go wrong? Well, I'll tell you what could go wrong. Tilk, first prime of Apophis, is leading the assault on the mountain. Jack goes out to buy some time, give us as much time as possible so that Daniel, who has finally convinced them to help him get him back to his own world, uh, only to find out that, well... You've just killed Dilk's family. Yeah, that's a, a little bit of a pick there. <laughs> like, if that bomb went through and was at the Chulak Gate, we know that Chulak's within sight of the gate, so Chulak's vaporised. Who's sending the message say that Chulak was vaporised in the time that Dilk's leading this pack? Maybe they're under the war footing, so there may be some attack in orbit. Yeah. One of them jumped to another system nearby and used that. Or they had gates on board anyway. Well, no, if the, Chul- if the Chulak Gate got destroyed, then a gate on the ship would work. We get in a later episode, too, that Florel's going to meet Apophis halfway there, so maybe he's going to call past and pick up some more Serpent Guard or and seize yeah. it. <laughs> Only to find out, hey, what, what's going on here, then? There's a big hole in the ground. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great notion, that. These people have found an address where this enemy force is based. Yeah, they got a warning. Beware the destroyers. That's it, yeah. But that's the thing, they get a gate address, but because the... Um... The SGC gates being held up by um ship in orbit or by someone else. They can't. They haven't got time to be able to dial there. They're still getting people out to the alpha site or beta site, and yet Daniel wants a chance to be able to get back to the the planet where all this started as well. Eventually, you know, he convinces them that his world, his people, still have a chance. These people, not so much. Jack gives his life, buying them time. Sam. At first, you think, what's she doing? You know, he's going to surrender, but nope, she's carrying grenades. Because <laughs> Dr. Samantha <laughs> Carter would know how to use a grenade. <laughs> well, I'll just pull the pin. Yeah, true. Uh, of course, in the relationship with Jack. Yeah, we get, yep. um, well, we don't actually see Catherine die. She just closes the storm shutters, the blast shields. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. After Carter speeds up the dying sequence, <laughs> and we just get fast forwarded footage. <laughs> 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 and not the actual gate spinning faster. <laughs> yeah, take all the safeties off. If if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But yeah, <laughs> yeah we, and finally we we get Daniel rushing towards the gate. Tilt makes his appearance, and he hesitates. Yeah. So the question is, does he deep down did what Jack told him that he wants to be free, he wants people to be free? Was that just enough to keep the finger off the trigger? It only when Daniel made a break for it that conditioning took over. Mm. And he got one shot, 
hit Daniel in the in the shoulder, which kind of propelled him through the gate. Well, Tilk was buying it when Jack was telling him the story and showing him the video, but the fact that they sent the bomb just <laughs> gave him a new yeah, reason to hate yeah. him. I believe everything you said, but I'm still going to kill you. Yeah. Kill my wife and child. Yeah. You understand, don't you? And Jack would probably say yes. Well, he does. He just sort of just the eyes sink and say, "Oh shit!" <laughs> he, yeah, as, as Tilt walks behind that cannon and probably blows oh. Jack in half. <laughs> He'd make a mess of everything behind Jack as well. Where's the Jafar cleanup crew? I want that mess cleaned up before our Lord Apophis gets here. Yeah, unfortunately for all the uh, the Jafar on in the SGC SGA, self destruct goes off, destroys the base. Daniel gets through, gets picked up by. SG-1, and he just managed to blurt out the coming, the coming credits. Yep, he's got so, the, the staff wound on his shoulder and the bit of paper yeah. in his hand. Yeah, everybody looks a bit puzzled when it looks like a staff blurt's weapon. Hmm. <laughs> Tilk, well, me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, just going through season one, we had the, the ghoul taking over one of our team members. We had the getting an infection off-world. We had someone losing the plot off-world. We've met some races, and the only sort of thing to tick off the list now as well. The Gould are coming, and that's what this episode does. It allows them to come and blow up, get into the base and that without affecting our own timeline. When you pair it up with Finn the Serpent's Grasp, I mean, again, like, uh, The Enemy Within and Children of the Gods, like, watching this and the final episode and even the start of Season 2 was three episodes together. I'd love that fan edit just to be able to watch them. Yeah, this is just a fantastic episode. Mm. This is perfect sci-fi storytelling, alternate reality and allowing, and not just being by itself, merging with your main timeline and making sense. Yeah. It don't always work in Star Trek when they do their mirror universe. <laughs> I think the, the best time it did work is when Enterprise did theirs and basically said, look, this has got nothing to do with our normal timeline. Just These are just two episodes in an alternate timeline. Mm. Go with it. Yeah. But this made the two timelines, two alternate, alternate realities work. Played right into what was coming in a couple of episodes' time. Mm. Perfect acting, actors playing slightly different roles, a few familiar faces back. Even Daniel just being frustrated because <laughs> everything seems that little bit different. And they sort of say that, again, like the slightest changes here and there have affected this world. And it's just lucky they went to one that's also close where he was able to get the gate address for a world that exists in, their, in his own. Yeah. We don't really get any backstory to the message that Santa be aware of the destroyers, because that origin is the planet we've later found out in the last episode that the, the Gould attack originated from. But whether that someone's descending out, it'd have to be a pretty powerful message to get out there. Yeah, could it have been maybe a Tok'ra operative or something? Well, they'd have to know that Earth would be able to receive. There's no point sending out a message in Gould if Earth wouldn't be able to receive it and translate it all. In this episode, more so, it seems like the Gould went there and conquered that planet and someone's been able to get a message off before they'll killed or the last stronghold taken over or something. And it's almost independent state. They've gone to that world now. They're coming to, come to the next world to take over you as well. It's, yeah, <laughs> somebody got a look at their timetable. Yeah. Uh, they're going there next. Yeah. <laughs> so very definite Cree. Yeah, Cree here as well. Politics. Well, we've, we've pretty <laughs> much just said everything that's in politics over the last, last hour or two, so... Yeah. Apart from Daniel sort of jumping around, warning, acting the nut that the the Gould are coming, and we get oh I've gone blank oh um, Kinsey Kinsey yeah I was trying to think of his real name um, <laughs> Ronnie Cox Ronnie Cox that's the one yeah eats up the screen as 
I'm pretty sure a Republican senator. <laughs> yes, he's very religious. Trying that, he's convinced that God will save the humanity, <laughs> and that if not God, then the U.S. military will. And the NRA. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there is no doubt in his mind that highly advanced aliens with interstellar travel are capable of destroying the U.S. military. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it'll be God's will that we survive. Jack countering that <laughs> for crying out loud. <laughs> yeah, these two, the two characters do not do not get on at all. Hammond is trying to be his diplomatic best, but he's, he has trouble reining in Jack and even Daniel. Kinsey, even though he says, I promise the president I'll give you a fair hearing, he does, he listens, but his mind's made up. For some reason, the appropriations of $7 billion per year, which is peanuts these days, <laughs> Obviously, he must have a pet project that he thinks he can spend the money on. Maybe if SG-1 had brought back more intrinsic items with more value, with more easily identified military uses, he would have been easier to convince. But while a good portion of this episode is just clip shows, just we know we've seen this before, we've seen this before, it is done well. Mm. It is done so much better than Korai. Yeah, playing off the strength of Kinsey and, that, and Jack, and just them going at each other, Jack trying to defend the program. Kinsey's saying, well, what do you got to show for it? And look at all these things that have happened. The base has been under attack. The, the base has been infected, contaminated. You'd have a lot more a lot more to say if this was a season two episode. <laughs> that's it. That's the unfortunate bit. Kinsey does have a point yeah. at times. Yeah. yeah, they've opened Pandora's box. That's what makes it work. His little lapdog, Samuel, he's just... Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> He's wearing the uniform, and he's he's even worse. He's he's a traitor, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Kinsey's just a politician. You expect a politician to look out for their own interests, but the way Samuel Samuel's is looking for his uh, next star by playing nice with the senator. Yeah. And you think, what reports has he given them? You know, how have they been doctored? How have they been manipulated a little to make the SGC look bad? I don't know how much that have to be doctored. Honestly, <laughs> like if you're looking at the um the issue and not the outcome and the, the important thing here too is kenzie gets his way the sgc shut down yes he does nobody off planet allow the gate to operate while they bring other teams in but what about this message the piece of paper with squiggly bits on yeah that's not going to sell it daniel daniel you were told to be quiet stop looking like the crazy uncle of the family <laughs> you went to an alternate dimension <laughs> <laughs> and got and got a message. Yes, and you were there, and you were there, and you were there. <laughs> you you weren't, but <laughs> <laughs> but it's got to be Watts for Kinsey. Yeah, this is where he comes in and shines. Yeah, much as you'd say normally, you know, it's a clip episode. You don't have to watch it. The very fact that Kinsey is there, the arguments made, the setup for the next episode, he is just so entertaining an actor. Yeah, and if you haven't haven't seen much of season one for a long time just throwing this in and you get those clips from some of the better better episodes and you go oh i remember that i'll go watch that now or it does just give that little bit of a little bit of a reminder of what's come before and if you're watching season one episodes regularly you'd be hit and skip as soon as one of the flashbacks start (laughs) yeah true it's on its own and left with enough time between viewings i think it's it's definitely a cree yep great And we're on to the season one finale within the Serpent's Grasp. Story by James Crocker, written by Jonathan Glasner, directed by David Waring Smith. Aired March the 6th, 1998. This is officially part two of three. Kinsey has shut down the Stargate program. 
SG-1 still has the address of originating point of the invasion. To be honest, they're not convinced that Daniel is right. Mm. He has, still has to work. Ultimately, what have they got to lose? If they survive, they could get they find nothing when they come back. They could get you know demoted. Mm, court-martialed. Court-martialed, yeah. If they are correct, then they could save the world. And I think that's enough for Jack. Mm. He expects to a little bit more persuasion with Sam, but you know they convince her, and they don their black outfits, and off they go. Love the black outfits. <laughs> yes, yeah, still G one. Yeah, fortunately they're not on. A, they don't get to a starship that's all white. <laughs> more gold, more shiny. Yeah, they do get to what well, we know to be a Hatak. At first, they don't realise they're on a ship. They do finally realise it when he jumps to hyperspace and Tilt correctly identifies that was hyperspace as he looks down and everybody else lands on the floor. Mm, prepare for hyperlaunch. <laughs> yes, hyperlaunch, okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is Tilk, you know, in that middle ground of we're not quite sure what he's supposed to know. Yeah. Like, there's no warning over the PA system. We get ready to go. He just hears the engines building up, which yeah. you can hear the engines throughout the attack. <laughs> And then everyone falls over if you're not braced. Well, that's it. They, they probably take a very simplistic approach to health and safety. If you get yourself injured by not paying attention to what's going on in the ship, that's your fault. <laughs> Only the strong survive. God does not take blame. <laughs> yeah. In the small print, obviously a staff weapon and everything. If you, if you hurt yourself, you are responsible. Yeah. If you damage this, you are responsible. If you damage this while beating an enemy to death with it, you are responsible. <laughs> uh, but then we get some of the, the discrepancies in tech as well. Once we do get to that Peltec and see that we're on a ship heading for Earth, the transparent, there's no glass strong enough to withstand the forces. So it's the shield over the front window. So in future episodes, whenever the Hatak loses the shields, of course, the Peltec decompresses. I suppose you could argue there's a secondary system. I suppose, yeah, because the shield would be out from the ship a little bit. We do see in this episode, no, next episode when they fire nukes at it, they stop well short. Yeah. We get the the communication device, the uh, Gawal TV, <laughs> just a great big orange ball. I'm not overly impressed with the uh, the technology. You know, you think, uh, surely they could have come up with something a little bit better than that. But uh, I suppose it's big, it's impressive. It allows Poffers to look down upon his people. I do love the uh, the rotating tracking lines around it. VHS. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Yeah, you've got a feeling that, you know, it's, it's Star Wars and their hologram technology is... It, their hologram technology is awful. Yeah. <laughs> it really is awful. They plant C4. They think, we destroy the ship. There should be no problem. We've got plenty of time. How fast does this ship go tilt? Ooh, 10 times the speed of light, something like that. <laughs> we got time. <laughs> Inter- interstellar Starship. That can only do 10 times the speed of light. Ain't going to get you very far very fast. No. no, it ain't. But not to worry. SG-1 uh, on the ball. We get Chlorel revealed with Skara. Oh, yeah. Which is probably, it's a good thing here. It sort of gives Jack the motivation to go after Skara and try and save him. Like, it would make sense that Sharae would be here. It would be Apophis as well. My queen, come and see me destroy these these cockroaches of Earth. But um, I think it would have overloaded the ghoul, the top end here, if in this double episode, if you had all three. Yeah. Go after Scar. Yeah, th- this is a boy's trip, a boy's night out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, take my son out on his first battle yep. to blood him. We'll rendezvous at Jupiter. Yeah. We know that the set, of course, is only two or three corridors with uh, all the hieroglyphics and the wall, but they do a damn good job making the Hatat look huge. Yeah. With plenty of hiding spaces and some floors, <laughs> yeah. some floors that echo a lot. Yeah, you, you know, you certainly know when the Jafar are doing the patrols. I don't know why 
whose idea that would have been even we've seen it earlier in the season as well just okay it might be a, a threatening thing of hearing the marching come towards you but then when you see him coming towards you, you can see clearly that they're not walking instead. <laughs> That's one of the things that you don't want to really notice. No. Nah. <laughs> It'd make more sense if they had some sort of sound protection device projecting that. So <laughs> yeah. That's your cadence of your march, and that's to make people fearful that you're coming. Even if it's two. <laughs> it's two or a hundred. You think there's a whole platoon coming around the corner and two guys <laughs> walk around with a the, with the little boombox on the shoulder. Different, you know, uh, aggressive marching, <laughs> casual marching, oh. <laughs> the rumba. <laughs> right, as you say, Skara is uh, in control of this ship. They make an assault on him. They actually capture him. Sealed and Souls in the room. Is Jafar trying to busy burst and get through, not having much luck? They realise that, they've already realised that they're a lot closer to Earth than they expected to be. Is this when she they replant the C4, don't they? No, it was already set up. Because they had it planted before they found out it was Scarra. Because once Scarra leaves with the with the troops, they plant C4 behind the gate and they say, right, Daniel, Sam, you plant C4, me and Tilka going after him, I think. <laughs> there's, there's too many there's too many storming the attack episodes now. <laughs> <laughs> they initially plant C4 in with a 24-hour timer. Yeah. Then they go to the landing bays because that's one of the, another good place to plant the C4, secondary explosions and all that. That's when they realise they're that close to Earth because everybody's gearing up. Mm. Then they raid Clarell. Then they're on the bridge. I think that's when they set some more C4 with an hour timer. They're going to get overwhelmed. They can't save Scarra, so they let him go. And that's when they sort of get captured. But before he takes them away, he says, come here, I want to show you <laughs> what's ahead. And that's when they emerge from behind Jupiter, I think it is, and realise that they're already there. The ship went a lot faster than what Tilk had assumed. And we don't get Apophis join them until the next episode. Clarell managed to grab Daniel, literally starts to kill him. That forces Jack to make the decision to fire on Clarell. Mm. He does. Camera pans away, and that's when we see that most of this has been a waste of time because there are two ships approaching Earth. Yep. Apophis has joined the party. Cue ominous music. Cue to be continued. Screams from the audience. Fade to black. <laughs> Excellent way to finish the season. Mm. Pre. Pre. <laughs> yep, definitely. <laughs> Overall, a good season. It's difficult to for any show to establish itself in the first season. You get some that hit the road. <laughs> hit the ground running. Hit the ground running, <laughs> yep. And somehow never maintain that pace, never maintain the story. They fade away. Heroes. Season one was absolutely incredible. Two, three, and four, not a patch. Mm. Lost. Season one, brilliant. Everything after that. Not so good. In your opinion. Most shows. <laughs> hey, I watched it all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think season one, you still had that idea that they know this is brilliant. They know what they're doing. This is going to be fantastic. Then they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. This is okay. Yep. Anyway, Stargate, like many, many shows, season one is where they find their footing. They made mistakes. They made corrections. It finished strong. It finished very strong. Mm. Yeah, well, that's it. And I think when you compare it to other season ones, like... Maybe like Universe and just how long it took to find its feet and that. It's just lucky that uh, Showtime and that gave MG and then the and MGM gave them the uh, the time to get a season two and three out there and really really get into those golden episodes. But some of those, as we said, like Comment to Tantalus and Solitudes, like episodes like that, I still put up high with some of the stuff we get later in season four and five. So there there were some episodes here they really knocked out of the park. Some that maybe they didn't. <laughs> 
Okay then, maybe not unsurprisingly, we didn't disagree about any of the episodes. We probably came close a couple of times, but out of the 21, if you count Children of the Gods as a feature, 15 positive, 6 negative, Cree all around. Yep, Cree for the win. So we're still talking nearly two-thirds worth watching on a, a rewatch. Obviously, if you're new to Stargate, you're going to watch them all anyway. That's not too bad at all. Mm. Yeah, that's it. You're, you're watching, you experience them, and then if you don't like it, you don't return to it. It's easy. Okay then, Brad. That is Season 1 of Stargate SD1. Excellent. And, oh look, it's nearly midnight. <laughs> <laughs> he says having to work tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> it may have went a little bit longer than expected, but I think we got, got some good stuff Well, in that's there. it. You think... Five minutes per episode, that should be fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay then, Brad, you want to give us a quick update of your various podcasts and online activities? Yes, well, um, the minute-by-minute minute format is still going strong. We are halfway through um, Jurassic Park 3 at the moment, so hopefully get that out of the way in the next couple of months and move on to Jurassic World. But the, on all the socials, that's under Jurassic Minutes, or uh, the website is jurassicminutes.wordpress.com, and that's sort of the hub where you can find out where we are online. And links to the podcast, so that's going that's going pretty good there. And yeah, guesting here and there on some other shows. So still staying busy. <laughs> right then, folks, if you want to join us on the Stargate Archives, just drop me a line. Stargatearchives.com is a website. Stargatearchives at gmail.com is the email address. We are on Facebook and Tumblr. Surprisingly, the demise of Google Plus has made it about 10 minutes every day. I don't have to spend updating a website. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> like I say, if you, if you want to join us, just pick an episode, any episode from the Stargate live action series, and uh, we'll have a chat about it over Skype. It is very simple. Yep. I've had a returning guests and a few new guests come on and pick an episode, and it's been fun. Yeah, no, it is great fun. Good to talk about a franchise we love so much. It is indeed. I have no idea what episode is going to be next, uh, so let's leave it as a mystery. Until next time, though, I've been Mike. And I've been Brad. Take care. Bye-bye. Goodbye.